Welcome to Talking Architecture and Design. My name is Branko Melodic, and today our guest is Chris Daff, who is the Managing Director of two progressive um, building firms, or development firms rather. The first is Make Ventures, a Melbourne-based property development and investment group focusing on large-scale urban renewal projects. And the second is Assemble Communities, an end-to-end build-to-rent developer and community manager, um, manage, uh, management company responsible for the introduction of a new and exciting housing model gaining significant, well, dare I, dare I say notoriety or, or, or fame, the build-to-rent model is what we're talking about. And we are speaking with him over video conferencing because we're all, we're all socially isolating still to hear how it's all going. So welcome, Chris Daff, and thank you very much for taking uh, the time out of your really busy schedule to have a chat with us here at Talking Architecture and Design. Hey, Branko. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, sort of. Still feel very busy. So <laughs> I'm, uh, I'll sort of go from Zoom to Zoom to Zoom to Teams to yeah. goodness knows what. So yeah, it's all good. So I, I, we're still kicking on. We've had six new starters during the shutdown in the team. So really, on, yeah, onboarding them and getting them up and going sort of been a bit more challenging than it normally would be. But um, they're managing and they're all they're all sort of firing on all cylinders now. So it's been great. The teams responded in a really positive way. We've got about thirty people in the team here, um, and they've all, it's actually fascinating, productivity in, in some parts of the business, I think it's probably, probably up on, on the norm, so. Okay. Um, so, yeah, it's interesting seeing how some people respond to the opportunity for some really focused work um, at home with maybe less distraction than what's in the office, so it's good. Very proud of them. Okay, well, that, that's actually really interesting. And that leads me into my first question. How are things actually going for the, well, for the general construction sector from, from your perspective at present? And, you know, with all this social isolation and, and, and the yeah. rest of it going on? Uh, look, construction's difficult. Uh, look, it's, it's, you know, it's obviously got its sort of essential service status and continued. Uh, I think it depends on the format. So um, for large towers in the city where there's a lot of requirement to move labour up and down buildings and things in quite close quarters in lifts and things. I think that's been very difficult um, and that's had a big effect. The social isolation's had a big effect on productivity um, for sort of smaller scale greenfield sites and the like. It's, uh, I think, been less of an impact, but um, been very impressed and, and sort of a bit of admiration for, you know, the way the sort of union movement and pretty much everyone nationally sort of um, accepted, you know, the necessity for the change and dealt with it in a really sort of positive way. So okay. everyone's doing the best they can, yeah. Well, that's actually really good to hear. Um, do, you, do you think that this all this goodwill is going to continue for, for, for the rest of the year? Oh, look, I think people accept the sort of necessity to continue to sort of do business and that, you know, people need to be working and... But you know, with the sort of overarching requirement of, of safety, health and safety. So, so I think what will change, and I think it's just human nature sort of dictates it, is that you know, at some point, frustration will set in. You know, and people will start to get just a bit, a bit sort of jack of the restrictions. But you know, I think to date, you know, it's been going for quite a while now. And for some organisations, you know, it's, it's a bit easier than others. Um, and clearly, you know, you can't sort of build something from your living room. So for construction, I think, you know, the big changes that we've sort of seen are, you know, sort of extended working hours and some of these things that uh, the construction industry is willing to adopt to allow production to continue at a good rate. You know, it's probably not the same rate as pre-restrictions, but, um, you know, 
things are going. And it's just a new norm. You need know, to do what you need to do to adapt to the new situation and to make sure that people are are well, you know, and that you're looking after the balance of the community in your operations. So okay. you know, outward looking piece has been the thing that I've been most interested in is saying, well, you know, what's the sort of potential for our operations to impact the broader community um, and making sure that you're doing everything within your control. Um, you know, I'm no health expert, but, you know, I'm doing everything I can within the control of my team and my business to make sure that we're not, um, you know, sort of amplifying the risk to others in the community. Okay, so let's talk about what you do. Um, what are or what were your motivations for pursuing socially responsible projects? Um, and, and what, well, can you actually firstly explain what, uh, how you describe or what is a socially responsible project from your point of view and what were your motivations for going down that path? Yeah, um, so I guess there's a few parts to the answer of that question. Um, what I'm... What I've done in the past has been quite a large amount of traditional sort of off-the-plan development that's been primarily delivered um, with a sort of focus on sort of shareholder and investor returns. Um, you know, we designed some great buildings and delivered some good projects and, you know, a lot of them I'm really proud of still. Um, but I guess the sort of missing piece and the, the sort of bit that you sort of need to make it whole is to say, well, what's really your sort of purpose in being in organisation and in business? And... I just, you know, started to move away from that sort of capitalist sort of desire to sort of continue to sort of be a profit-driven organisation to say, well, the future of business, um, you know, the future of economies, um, the future of investment, you know, and we see this from the largest investors that we see in this country and their focus on um, ESG, um, so, you know, environmental, social, um, you know, governance outcomes as a part of their investments is becoming a bigger and bigger thing. So, so as an industry, I think we need to do a sort of better job in saying what are the skills that we've got? And we've got a lot of skills in building buildings, building housing in particular, um, and how can we lever those skills to deliver more socially responsible projects? And my view is, you know, I can't do everything, but I can. we can do some things very well. So we have a sole focus on delivering very low, low and middle income housing. So, and that's for the people that find housing the hardest. So the people that exist in a housing system that's devoid of any real tenure certainty. So they're in sort of year to year leasing and, you know, got the potential to be sort of thrown out at sort of, you know, a month's notice after the, the first year of their tenancy to say, well, if we can provide these people with tenure certainty, so long-term fair leases, um, and potentially in some cases with the option for ownership, um, is that going to make them a more productive member of a community, of an economy? Are they more going to have a greater propensity to volunteer in their community, to participate in community activities in the location where they're living because they know they're going to be able to stay there for five or ten years? We give them and their family the stability to be able to get children into schools, you know, without the nervousness that the house they're renting may be sold from under them and have to move a suburb over and all the disruption that goes with that. So how would that make them feel about their housing future? So, um, so we, you know, we did a big research thesis on it and spoke to a lot of people about how they felt about the housing system in Australia. Who was it designed for? Um, you know, we captured the sort of underlying theme that for people in which ownership's probably always going to be difficult. Um, there's a sort of general resentment of the housing system in saying, well, 
I'm stuck in a rental apartment that's owned by some wealthy investor who's got seven investment properties and they do all that off the back of a whole bunch of taxation advantage, et cetera, or you need to have a heck of a lot of money to purchase a property. So, and I think perhaps um, there's a sort of movement out there who feel like tenure certainty and housing certainty hasn't been provided to more recent generations in a fair way, in the same as has been to people in the past in this country. So, um, so we sort of started to speak to people and say, well, if we gave you long-term leasing, if we gave you the opportunity to potentially purchase a property at some point in time, you know, how would that make you feel about your housing future? And I think the general consensus was that if we could provide someone with stability um, and support, then that would make them feel a lot better about their housing future and make them be, you know, a have a sort of more positive outlook on a whole bunch of other elements of their life as well. So, so, so I think there's a real sort of social impact piece there um, in what we do. And we attract a lot of people to work here and partner with us that wouldn't work with us if we were just delivering conventional sort of off-the-plan property developments. So, um, and our organisation's a lot richer as a result of that. So that's that's the build-to-rent model that you just described, yeah. isn't it? Okay, so um, is that... Uh, is the popularity for that Australia-wide or are there, I mean, are you finding like, let's say, New South Wales or Victoria are finding it a little bit more, um, you know, of interest? Uh, no, look, we've got, we're looking at properties in Brisbane at the moment to expand there. Look, we think the issues are consistent um, across all locations, you know, all geographies in Australia. Um, so, we, you know, we think the problems are, you know, sort of prevalent everywhere. So, um, and... We have obviously focused on Melbourne because that's a market that we're most familiar with. And when you're doing something new, to be doing something new, new development models, and also a new location that you're not as familiar with, you know, is just you know sort of another added layer of complexity. But we'll be in Sydney. We'll announce projects in Sydney and Brisbane this year. Um, so so we will expand nationally. And um, you know, we see the as I said sort of earlier, the issues being. You know, fairly consistent in most locations. So, okay. So there's there's a there's a obviously a social um, sustainability uh, or um, or responsibility, however you want to call it, that, that you've you know obviously built into that that model. Um, what about other sustainability features into into the design of the buildings? Um, look, so environmental performance is very important to our clients and people that are interested in living in an assembled building. So. Um, you know, so we outperform the market on um, the um, sustainability of our buildings. So we put a big focus on uh, and a big investment in the building fabric to make sure the apartments are sort of warm in winter and and cool in summer and they're energy efficient to to um, to operate. So we um, look to achieve a twenty percent cost of energy saving to our residents. Uh, so we direct purchase one hundred percent green power from uh, the energy producers at the farm, you know, either wind or solar, uh, and direct feed that into our developments. Um, so we've got, um, you know, sort of, and we look, there's a minimum 7.5 star Nathus rating for um, our buildings, which is a, you know, much higher than I think the, you know, the market would generally be producing. And I think we sort of look at it and say, well, it's, it's a bit more, you know, so everyone sort of thinks sustainability is all about energy and, and that's super important, right? So we need to be more efficient um, moving forward and we need to do a better job of managing um, our sort of resource demand for the projects that we're building. But probably one of the 
things that we do spend a lot of time on also, and we think it's equally as important in terms of how sustainable is this neighbourhood that we're building for this community of um, households. And we say the social sustainability is just as important, so we need to introduce programming into these buildings. So Because I sort of have these debates with, you know, some... You know, a bunch of people in the industry and they think just because someone lives in the CBD of Melbourne on level 15 in some apartment building, there's this sort of imagined life that they've got the most cosmopolitan engaged life, uh-huh. which is this sort of fantastic, you know, you know sort, of, um, sort of amazing thing for them where in reality, you know, there's just as much social isolation, if not more, in the inner city context in someone living in a little bolt hole in the sky in some building in the city compared to someone that lives in a cul-de-sac in a greenfield subdivision who probably knows the other 11 families that live in that cul-de-sac and they probably play cricket together on a Saturday morning with the kids or whatever it is. So so we sort of say, so if we can introduce some programming, um, some opportunities for unforced social interaction between our residents, then we think that's super important. So so we have dedicated on-site teams to help to um, facilitate um, various programming. So whether that's walking groups, gardening groups, yoga, um, cooking, how to fix your bike sessions, these sorts of things. So, um, and none of this is compulsory. So we sort of um, like the opportunity for community to sort of form in a, in a sort of unforced, more organic way over time. So, so, yes. so you're, you're almost, you're not even a developer anymore. You're now a, a, almost a social engineer. <laughs> We don't, we don't try and socially engineer an outcome because, you know, we don't think we'd be very good at it. So, so but, um, but we do try to provide a much higher level of support than what people would have experienced in a conventional apartment living environment in Melbourne. So it's a much deeper offer than that. But it's a very non-embellished offer. So we don't do wine and cheese pairing evenings and we don't have gyms and pools and all this stuff that you don't really need to live a good life. We have... The sort of necessities done very well, um, and then a whole bunch of spaces that are useful for people where they can do little tasks together, like workshops and gardens and areas for a communal dinner and these types of things. So um, spaces that can be, you know, uh, I guess just a bit more of a sort of organic offer than the sort of bling. You, know. you could always try wine and cheese in the pool. I was going to say that. Um, <laughs> I was going to say that uh, this is the what you call the, the assemble model, is it? And are there any other benefits for the residents? Yeah, so um, the model that we've been talking about more publicly is uh, a model where we give people the opportunity to rent an apartment for five years and we tell them up front how much their rent's going to be and, and that doesn't change. And then they get the opportunity to purchase their property at the end of a five-year lease for a price that we pre-agree up front. And throughout that time, we support them with financial coaching. So we've got a financial coach in-house. So uh, that's opt-in, you know, and it's just acknowledging that some people are less comfortable with numbers and finances and how to form a household budget and what's actually a mortgage. You know, if you've never really thought about home ownership, you know, what does it actually mean to get a loan off the bank and how does that work and how much deposit do I need to have together over... So we say to someone, well, over the period of time that... You know, you're renting off us, you know, you'll need to save X dollars per week to have enough deposit together at the end. Um, and we provide the whole service on a foundation of no downside. So for whatever reason, people aren't in a position to buy the property or they need to leave after a year or two into the five years, then they're free to do that and 
they get their bond back and they move on and there's um, sort of no financial impact as a result of not getting there for whatever reason or having a change in circumstance or, you know, just deciding that you're you know, not into doing the gardening with your neighbours, whatever it is. <laughs> So out of interest, how long on average does it take for a resident to own one of the apartments uh, or how long should it take? So we've done a, we did a lot of work with ANZ early days on trying to determine, assuming someone paid a bond, um, you know, to sort of, you know, a rental bond, um, how long would that person need? And then they had only a dollar in the bank after they paid their bond rights, but that's all the money they've got they've put into that. How long would they need on certain salary assumptions to um, save for a deposit? And about seven years is the period of time that we determined. So we worked that out. So we've got two years of building. Usually takes us about two years to build our buildings, plus a five-year lease is the seven years someone needs to save a deposit, mm-hmm. assuming they're sort of starting from zero today. Mm-hmm. Um, so if in advance of starting construction of our buildings, we pre-commit someone to, you know, they can have a five-year lease if they want to, and then we pre-agree a purchase price for seven years down the track. So, and for our residents, there's a few elements I like about that. One is the time. You know, the other element is they've got a fixed goal to work towards because a lot of these people have experienced runaway house prices and things, and a lot of them might have been doing a good job of their savings and, you know, working hard towards a deposit, but then they pick up the front of the Australian newspaper and it says Australian house prices have gone up 15% for the year again and they just go, this is just impossible. Like, I'm never going to make this, right? So so, um, so the fixed goal is an important thing. And then support. So having a financial coach that they can have confidential discussions with about, do I need to save $50 a week or $100 a week or over seven years, sort of what's the number, how much deposit do I need? So just to make it uh, sort of a bit less you know, of a mountain to climb for someone to sort of help them along the way. Um, okay, so from from the developer's point of view, how does it actually um, affect or change or influence the return on investment for you guys? <laughs> um, so if you wanted to be a stereotypical developer, you wouldn't do this. Um, so our returns are pretty crummy compared to conventional off-the-plan development, but they're different, so they're, they're much lower, but they're, we think they're more stable long-term returns, which is just a different investment philosophy than the sort of whip a project up, get a huge profit, do the next project, whip another one up, get a big profit, where we're saying our investors and our capital partners are happy to take a longer-term approach to investment. So we'll accept a return that's maybe one quarter of the return that we'd get off the plan but we'll get some rent along the way from um, the residents and then we'll you know, ultimately get um, some proceeds when the people sort of buy their apartments at the end. So you've just got to have a, a sort of longer-term view and be investing on the thematic and saying, well, we'll make a reasonable return um, and we'll also hopefully on the way have helped a lot of young Australians or older Australians or whoever into home ownership and provided them with a leg up in their life too. What are actually the demographics of, of the typical um, uh, client of yours? So there's two, right? So, we you know, we sort of had our hypothesis and we thought these are all going to be sort of 25 to 40-year-old young Australian aspiring homeowners and probably lots of singles and couples wanting to start a family or with young kids. And, and that was right to a certain extent. You know, there was probably um, 
two thirds um, of people interested in, you know, we've got over 10,000 people sort of registered to get a spot in one of our buildings now. Um, but is about two thirds of them would sort of fit that roughly. Um, the unexpected one, uh, which has sort of caught us by surprise a little bit, but it's sort of obvious when you're thinking about it, is older Australians and quite often older Australians from a single person in household who are sort of far too young to sort of move into any sort of supported care, not interested in being a retirement village. They want to live in an environment where they feel like their neighbour might have their back if something happens to them, so and that they might be able to call on their neighbour for some assistance with something. So um, so they've been super attracted to the sort of way of life and that more engaged life that they would have in an assembled neighbourhood compared building compared to, you know, what might be on offer on the sort of standard bog standard apartment building around the corner. So so and there's, you know, so it's quite cute really. Like you know, the first building there's a couple of older women, you know, and they sort of, you know, they're the sort of nonners of the of the building. So I think everyone sort of is going to be imagining that they'll be making everyone sort of lasagna on a Friday night for tea or something cute like that. So yeah, it's lovely. So I've got a mother and a daughter in the first project in separate apartments that are sort of living um, upstairs and downstairs from each other. So um, so they've sort of got that sort of nice family connection as well. So, so yeah, so that demographic, that sort of older group, but it's obvious when you think about it, you know, as to why there's that attraction's there. But, um, you know, our mind just hadn't sort of moved into that group. But um, we think that sort of that a sort of richness to the, to the makeup of the building, yeah. So you're not actually a, a building uh, building or a building developer, you're actually a neighbourhood developer? We think the quality of life of the residents, so clearly the quality of our built form, you know, these need to be very good quality apartments that people have a very good life in um, and that are robust and stand the test of time uh, because if they don't, you know, clearly people will just move out or they won't want to buy it after the five years or whatever. So... We feel like we've got a unique alignment from the compared to a, conven a conventional developer who sort of as soon as the building's finished, it's sold off to everyone that's bought their individual apartments and they sort of move on to the next project. Yeah. So there's a sort of inherent um, pressure on us to be sort of doing better with the projects that we're delivering. But really the whole brand's going to be, you know, and we think there's other developers that do do similar quality projects around the place, but the quality of life and the sort of resident experience is going to be absolutely fundamental to Assemble's brand moving forward. So have we delivered on our promise? You know, are people, are they more sort of engaged with their neighbours and they might be in a sort of conventional project? So, um, and that's really the most exciting part. So to have a relationship with a developer for the long term, post-completion of your project, make sure that people are having a good time in the homes that you built for them, in the community, the neighbourhood that you built for them, um, is the most fascinating and sort of um, interesting sort of challenge I've ever faced in any project I've done, and it's it's super exciting. Uh, yeah. Okay, can you tell me more about the Thompson Street project and that's launching um, soon, I believe, and um, also the Macaulay Road one that's under construction now. They're both in Melbourne, aren't they? Yeah, they are. So they're both in Kensington, actually, in the same suburb in Melbourne, which is about three kilometres uh, sort of west northwest of the CBD. Um, so, yeah, Macaulay Road's under construction. So that was our pilot project. So that was 73 apartments. Um, and that's, um, we've got a partnership with ANZ for the delivery of that project and that'll be completed next May. So, um, so that one's fully committed and, you know, there's a whole bunch of super engaged future residents there and 
they're, uh, they've got a sort of little a Facebook group going and they sort of share pictures of their cats and dogs and goldfish and everything else that are sort of going on. So they're actually sort of, and we do, we host a bunch of little events and things to sort of help the community to sort of form in advance of sort of formally moving in together. So that's quite nice. Um, so yeah, so that'll be finished next May. And then Thompson Street's a project around the corner, um, which is a bit bigger. So that's two buildings of about 100 apartments each. Um, oriented around a set of central parkway, pocket park that we're delivering. So, and that's, um, you know, that scale of projects allowed us to do, uh, to provide a sort of, the sort of next level of infrastructure to our community. So there's multiple communal rooms, um, there's much larger sort of workshop spaces, you know, there's a rooftop pizza oven, there's chooks up there, there's um, a futsal court. So there's all those sorts of, um, you know, kids play area, these types of things. So we can sort of um, take the sort of amenity offer and the resident um, shared spaces to the next level with that project. So, yeah, and that one's open for applications at the moment. You know, we've had a super strong response, which uh, I think in these times is sort of testament to people's confidence in Assemble and our brand and what we stand for and our ability to sort of get these projects going. Um, and that'll sort of conclude sort of May to June and we'll start building that one early next year. Are they, um, how are they different? How are they the same in terms of design and, and, and layout? Uh, the thing that we um, did differently on this project is we had a, um, so we've got a greater variety of apartment types too. And basically the way that we design our apartments is we look at how much money do people and so what's a sort of lower middle income look like in the context of the location we're going to put a building and can we design apartment product to um, suit those incomes and to be affordable for those incomes. So we found that in the first project we had sort of larger apartments that would inherently, you know, uh, have a higher rent and ultimately a higher purchase price where we've pivoted about 50% of the stock now to be uh, more compact one-bedroom apartments, two-bedroom apartments and a three-bedroom, one-bathroom format, which has been really popular as well. So, And I think you know it's important to sort of note that in the context of these buildings where we've got, um, you know, over 700 square metres of communal spaces, you know, meeting rooms, all these sorts of things that... You know, it's not just your apartment that you've got to rely on for your life in one of our buildings. You've got all these other shared spaces that you can use for, you know, if you want to have a dinner party with a dozen guests, you can go and book one of the rooms downstairs and use the commercial kitchen down there and have a big cook-up or, or whatever you want to do. So so it's really been the delivery of um, some more product into the market uh, that's more affordable for um, lower-income Victorians. Okay, well, um, all right, lastly, let's uh, ask you the guru question. With everything that's going on and with everything that's happening with the um, with the industry, uh, where do you think we're going to be, let's say, this time next year? Uh, I think what we'll go is we'll get a sort of sugar hit stimulus um, and, that, you know, that'll be a big focus on first-time purchases, um, sort of other sort of tax incentives to stimulate the industry. I think the, the sort of elephant in the room still um, border reopening. So, yeah. uh, and I think the federal government needs to, and they will, and I don't think there's any doubt, and this will be a very big 
uh, issue for the next federal election is immigration policy, but government, you know, at all levels, um, and I'm quite engaged with the Victorian government on policy setting and stimulus measures and these types of things at the moment, but the federal government in particular needs to have a view on the future. So we might get some sugar hit stimulus that might give us sort of 12 months of activity, but everyone in this whole country sort of accepts that our whole economy is being um, driven by ongoing consistent population growth. So I think we'll see sort of post-depression, post-Great War era levels of immigration where we go from, you know, the sort of 150 to 180,000 net migration that we sort of fluctuate have been fluctuating around to, you know, maybe double that, you know, for half a decade to say, well, um, we accept that um, we need to, and we think Australia, well, I think Australia will be a very desirable place for people to go. We've got a government that's very stable, you know, whichever side it is, it's basically sort of the same. And we've demonstrated um, that we're a people that are resilient and deal with crisis very well. So, um, and I've been very proud of, all levels of government and the way they've dealt with this crisis. I'm not always proud of them. You know, they do a lot of things that I find very disappointing, but um, I'm proud of government um, and the industry and just the general community and the way they've dealt with this crisis. So I think that that gives us the opportunity to potentially capture a disproportionate share of international investment. Um, so, you know, compared to other geographies that perhaps did not deal with this issue as well. Um, and also become, you know, a highly desirable place to move a family. You know, if you've got two young kids, do you want to live in Dallas or Melbourne? Mm. You know, I know where I'd rather be. So, you know, in case, God forbid, something ever happened again. So, well, that's well, a very positive point to end up on. Thank you very much for taking the time to talk with us, uh, Chris Taff. Um, I really appreciate it. I hope this won't be the last time we chat and maybe perhaps even next time we might even meet in person. I'd love that. That'd be great. Thanks, Franco. You've been listening to Talking Architecture and Design. Until next time, goodbye.